You're listening to a message from Southview Church, located right outside of Nashville and Spring Hill, Tennessee. Now here's our featured sermon of the week. I have the honor today of, of bringing the message, uh, but before I do, you know, if you haven't been reading the book of John, it's not too late. You can still get into it. Catch up to us. John 1, 2, and 3 brought were fantastic messages. Pastor Mark started off with, would you be in Jesus's crew? Would you make Jesus's crew? It's a tough question. We all like to think we would, but really when we examine ourselves, it's a good question, would we? Pastor Raphael followed him up with, would Jesus entrust himself to you? And that's a tough question. We want Jesus to, but would he? And then last week, Pastor Mark really, it's interesting, man, you know, three chapters in, and it's just like, bam, 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 just hardened, it's like great messages. Pastor Mark talked about dying to ourself with, with he is greater than I and how we have to constantly live. And dead, men, dead men don't care. Dead people don't care. So, so if you haven't seen that message, I encourage you to go and check it out. Before I get into John 4, I want to ask something of you. Listen to this message with an open heart. Listen to this message with an open mind. This is not an attack on anybody. This message is not to call you out or call out your salvation or call out the way that you walk. This message is simply a message that God gave me to challenge you in your walk and in your daily, daily interactions. John 4 is, is, has two stories. I love it. At the beginning, Pastor Mark actually talked about how in the book of John, there's no parables. And I think that that's why John really appeals to me. That book really appeals to me because it's kind of a, a, a narrative. It's almost like reading a novel. You get to just kind of put yourself in, in, in character and like just watch as all of this is, is going. You're not really learning as much as you're watching and learning from. And it's such a beautiful thing. But there's, there's two stories within the book of John 4, within John 4. The first one is, is Jesus and the woman of Samaria. And the second one is Jesus heals the official son. And Jesus healing the official son has, I mean, you could probably do a sermon or two easily out of that because, you know, and just talk about faith and, and how standing in the gap is what, you know, you can stand in the gap and people can still re- receive healing. But today we're going to focus on the first story, Jesus and the woman of Samaria and what I'm going to try and unpack over the next 35, 40 minutes is these, these verses in a way that is going to make you go, hmm, okay. Today's title is Stay Thirsty, My Friends. Now, some of you, some of you may remember that tagline from a beer commercial in the early 2000s. If that is you, raise your hand. I'll pray for you later. No, I'm just, oh, golly. Don't raise your hand. I'll just come up to me. I'll pray for you after. But in those, in, those, in those beer commercials, they featured somebody called the most interesting man in the world. Now, I'm not going to sit here and talk about this advertising campaign. It was wildly successful and lasted for you know, a handful of years. But what I can tell you is that today we will be talking about the most interesting man in the world. Let me set the scene for you as we, as we start into to John 4. We rolled out of John 3, and we start John 4 with John 4, 1. There's the scene. Is, no, I'm just kidding. All right, so the Pharisees have started to hear that Jesus is baptizing more people than John the Baptist. Now, Jesus didn't baptize people. His disciples baptized people, but more people were coming to him. And so Jesus knew that there was a confrontation on the way. He knew it was coming. I mean, obviously, that's why he was here, right? 
But he also knew that it wasn't his time for this confrontation to happen yet. So rather than just kind of hang out and allow it to, to, to happen and put the cart before the horse, Jesus decided that it was time for him to leave Judea and head to Galilee. So he strapped on his Birkenstocks and off he went. It's about a 70-mile walk. About, thank you. Thank you. It's about a 70-mile walk, but it takes about two and a half days. Now, in tow, he has a whole bunch of people, and if you've ever taken a drive with kids, you know, they, are we there yet? Is, it kind of gets a little tiresome. Now, imagine all of these guys saying the same thing, talking to Jesus. He's lived with them. They're, they're doing this walk. The shortest distance through to, from, from Judea to Galilee is actually through, through uh, it's actually through Samaria, but Jews refused to go that way because they, they didn't trust the Samarians, and really, they didn't like them. If you read up on some of the history, it's really interesting as to why, but basically they just thought that they were the lowest of the low. They thought they were the scourge of the earth. They didn't, so they would, they would go out of their way to avoid Samaria. It would, be like, it would be like us leaving here, taking 840 to 40 to get to Nashville because we didn't want to drive through Franklin. I mean, it was a long way around. But Jesus being Jesus, he said, oh, I'm just, I'm going through and this is what I'm going to do. So off he went and, and he came to a town called Sychar, which is where Jacob's well was. And around, around noon, it, it, scripture says about the sixth hour, which is around noon, Jesus gets tired. Now in John 1, we see that, that the author takes and, and shows the deity of Jesus. He talks about Jesus being there from the beginning, knowing, being with the word. And in John 4, he makes a very intentional note to show the human side of Jesus. He was tired. He was weird, 70 mile walk. He was tired. Now, I've never been to Israel. I've never been to, to this area, but I have been to the desert. And I do know that noon in the desert is hot and it's not fun. And you try and find any little bit of shade. You try and find any, anything that will, that will cool it down a degree or two. And, and for, those of, for those of us who've been in the military and, and have deployed, that's why the camel spiders will chase you because they're trying to get in your shadow. And they are big. If you want to see what a camel spider is, look them up and then imagine that thing chasing you. It's not fun. They look like aliens, absolutely. But so the author shows us that Jesus, it shows his human side. It's noon. It's hot. He wants to rest. So he sends his disciples off and, and they, go to, they go to a town to get some supplies, get some food and stuff like that. And Jesus is sitting by this well and along comes a Samarian woman to draw some water. Now Jesus is alone. And this woman comes up and he engages her. Pause that story for just a second. There are some people in here who, want, who, who, are, who feel called to ministry. There's some people in here who say, I want to lead a department. I want to lead a family group. I want to lead this. I want to stand on the platform and, and deliver a message. Well, here's a free piece of ministry advice. If you're ever in this situation, be careful. Be careful. Be careful ministering to the opposite sex in a one-on-one -on -one situation. Why? Because the devil loves to sow seeds of doubt and confusion and question. And in people's mind, in a fallen world, perception is reality. All it takes... All it takes is for one person to say something, and it ruins the day. Now, that's not, that's not uh, to say that, that this interaction with Jesus and this woman wasn't dangerous, because it really was for the same reason. And we're going to unpack some of that here in just a little bit, but this, this particular 
interaction could have even been forbade by, by religious law. You see, rabbis weren't permitted to speak to women in public. So much so that, that some of them weren't even allowed to address their wives or daughters in public. Now, I can just tell you, my wife isn't here. She's home with a, with a sick little one. But I can just tell you this, that if I didn't speak to her in public, I'd walk around with a black eye. Seriously, because she'd be like, hey, baby, I'd be like, I can't talk to you. You know, and she'd be like, whack. But what's funny, really, it's not funny. As I was researching this, there, there's actually, um, in, in uh, Barclay mentions it, that, that they would actually call them the bruised and bloodied Jews because they would be walking, some of these rabbis would be walking in public, and if they saw a woman come, they'd, close their, they'd cover their eyes, and they'd run into walls and run into doors and stuff. So they were always bruised, always bleeding because they were that devout at not looking or speaking or interacting with women. So if you take all of that and you put that at the well, where here comes this woman and here's Jesus, you see just how big of a deal this really is. Just how big of a deal it really is. This unique interaction and this unique woman, as we'll see, it changed a lot of things, changed a lot of perceptions. You see, in this area, women would typically go in the morning to draw water from the well, and they'd typically go in a group. This woman didn't. She came at noon, middle of the day. She came alone. Now, it doesn't really say what, what, why she was there or, or what, the, what the reason was, so we can infer some things. We can kind of put some things around it, you know, just to, to give ourselves a little context, right? Maybe it was an emergency. Maybe she didn't get enough in the morning. Maybe she's like, oh, man, I got people coming over. I got to cook some lentils. I need more water. Run up to the well. Or maybe because of her past and because of who she was, she was ostracized. She was outcast. She was shunned by all the other women. They said, we don't want you. Go by yourself. So when we read this interaction between her and Jesus, if you take that perspective of, okay, she's an outcast, she's shunned, Maybe she's kind of this, this meek, downcast, Samarian woman. And you'd read verse 9, because in verse 7, Jesus says, give me a drink. And if you read it with that kind of this downcast mindset, her response might be something like, well, how is it that you, a Jew, would ask for a drink from me, a woman from Samaria? It's kind of this meek, like, who am I? You could take it that way. But what the Lord revealed to me as I was reading this, is what if you look at it from a different perspective? What if she is somebody who's been outcast and, and shunned? To me, if I'm an outcast, I'm, I'm probably not so meek and, and, and demure. I'm probably not so, so small. I'm probably a little upset, a little frustrated, a little sarcastic, a little, little cynical. All of a sudden, when you, do that, when you hear that, you read, Jesus says, give me a drink, and and Listen to this response. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Changes everything. But what doesn't change is Jesus' response to her in verse 10. He said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus is starting to dismantle that cynicism, that sarcasm. He's starting to, to, to take away that quick-witted tongue that sharpness. And he does three things when, when he mentions that. Three things. He creates an interest in God because he says, if you knew the gift of God, he creates interest in himself, who it is that says, or who it is that's saying to you, 
And then the third thing is he's, he's creating interest in his gift, the gift of living water. You see, what Jesus is doing is he's opening the door. He's just opening the door. But like the loving, merciful God that he is, he's not forcing her through it. He's not pushing her through it. He's not saying, get through the door. He's just opening it. Because here's the thing. As he disarms her, as he takes away excuses, as he starts to unpack this, he knows who she is. He knows what he's about to do. And he knows that her response will change her life forever, forever. But of course, she turns around and she points out the obvious in a cynical way, I think. Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. Remember, the disciples had went into town and they probably took the, the leather pouch that would be used or the cups. She says, you have nothing to draw water with. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than Jacob? or his offspring, or his cattle. They all drink from this well. Who are you? You see, she's, she's looking at this living water differently than what Jesus means it. Jesus says, he responds to her in verse 13. He says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Right there, it starts to click for her. It's like, I'm almost there, but she's still not getting it. She's almost there, just not quite. Because she, she says that, she's, that she wants this water, but she's thinking about the physical. She's saying, you know, I, yes, I want this water. I, I never want to have to thirst again. I don't ever want to come back to this well. Okay, so she understands that he's giving her a gift. She just doesn't understand the gift yet. She doesn't understand the water that, that he's bringing to her. What she understands is that there's something that will stop her thirst. She's thinking physical. But Jesus responds to her, and this takes us to our key text. I know some of you are taking notes, but I'm going to ask you to stand as we read John 14, 16, 4, 16 through 26. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one you are with now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know Messiah. I know that Messiah is coming he was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Verse 26, Jesus said to her, I, who you speak to, am he. <sighs> Lord Jesus, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for those words. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. I, who you speak to, am he. Those words should weigh heavy. 
Why? I mean, very simply, that's the first time he ever reveals himself as the Messiah. The first time he reveals himself as the Messiah is to this woman. Here's who it wasn't to. It wasn't, he didn't reveal himself to the, as the Messiah to the religious leaders of the day that were waiting for him. They were waiting for him and he didn't do it. He didn't reveal himself to the 12 men that he asked to drop everything, leave your families and follow me. He didn't reveal himself to his disciples yet. He didn't reveal himself to his own mother. She knew who he was. But think back to two weeks ago when Pastor Raphael talked about the, the miracle at the wedding. She said, she asked him to do something. He said, woman, it's not my time. He didn't even reveal himself to his mother. But yet, he reveals himself. Here's who it, it was to. A Samarian woman. A Samarian woman divorced five times. A sinner. A sinner. Jesus revealed himself for the first time as the Messiah to a sinner in a situation that he shouldn't have been in, in a time that could have been really bad for him and really bad for her, he revealed himself to her. He chose to tell her who he was. Jesus knew she was living in sin, but he waited for her to confess it before he revealed himself to her. He knew the answer behind the statement, go get your husband. He knew it. He knew how she was going to answer. When she answered, that's why he said, what you said is true. He unpacks it all. What he showed is that, yes, you've been divorced five times, and you're currently living in sin, but here's what I'm going to tell you. What you're living in right now, that's not marriage. There's no common law marriage in the kingdom. You're either married or you're not, and right now you're living in sin. It wasn't until she confessed it that he said, this is who I am. The confession of sin revealed he was able to say, here I am in all my glory and all my majesty and all the love and all the grace to a sinner, to the least of these. That was the model then. It's the model for us now, right? Both then and now, we have to be willing to bear ourselves to Christ. We have to be willing to confess to repent, and to be changed. The problem is, we usually do one of those things and think we're good. We don't follow through. And again, this is not a condemnation on any one person. This is not a condemnation if you, if you were saved and, and have not backslidden and you're doing great and you're living for the Lord. This is not saying that to you. What the Lord revealed to me is that this message, this part of this message is to encourage us to get out of our comfort, to get out of comfortability. Because when we become comfortable, we become complacent. And that's why, that's why I say that sometimes we'll confess, sometimes we'll repent, but we're not changed. We'll walk in here on a Sunday and throw our hands up. Oh, worship is so good. God, you are worthy of it all. Wash me, clean me. Send me through the refiner's fire. Whatever it is, we'll worship. We'll throw our hands up. 
We'll proclaim him as our Lord and Savior, and then Monday we'll turn around and nail him to the cross because we're still living in sin. And then we turn around and we blame God. Oh, God's not listening. He can't hear me. Where is he now? He's angry with us. Proverbs 26, 11 says, that, says, like a dog returns to its vomit, so is a fool who repeats his folly. That's us. That's us, all of us. Because we sit here and we beg for God to change things, but then we don't hold up our end of the bargain. So often we don't. We cheapen our encounter by making about what God can do for us rather than, rather than what he's saving us from. We're willing to call on the name of Jesus so often, but we're not willing to give him everything unless it's convenient, it doesn't hurt, it's comfortable, it's Instagram or pulpit pretty. I'll give you everything, God, as long as it fits those four things. Don't get me out of my comfort zone. Don't take my tempur mattress. I'm not sleeping on a floor. Don't take away my Nikes and give me some New Balance. <laughs> Church, we start to relate more to the rich young ruler than we do the Acts church. I'll give you everything, God. Sell everything you have. Mm. Nope, that's okay. I'll give you everything up and in two, but not past. We search for comfort and convenience, and, we, we, and when we do that, we relegate God to a feel-good moment. We take God from Jehovah Jireh to Jehovah Genie, calling on him when we need something or want something, but not in our overall provider. We take it from God the Father to God the pharmacist. God, just give me a little pill to get me through till next Sunday when I can feel you again. Mm. We want to walk like the disciples do, but we stop short of the sacrifice of everything. The disciples saw a man that said, drop your nets and follow me. You imagine how that conversation went at home? Hey, baby. Got to go, whack. But they left everything. They walked away from it all for three years and then turned around and ended up dying for what they walked in. And we argue and struggle with giving our time, talent, and our treasure because we're too scared of the what if. Well, I can't give my time because what if I miss, what if I miss the kid's soccer game? I can't give my talent because what if somebody, what if I do it and then somebody's better than me? I can't give my treasure. What if I can't pay my bills? Look, we've all been there in one way or another. Before I stepped into ministry, my hardest thing, the thing that I didn't want to do, I trusted God with everything, my family, my kids. God, send me wherever, have me do whatever. It's fine but I just couldn't turn over my finances. I couldn't. Why? I knew Excel better than God. I know QuickBooks better than God. I can balance my checkbook better than he can. But when I finally heard from him and he said, if you trust me, trust me with everything. And I stepped into it. And then I watched God provide for lack. I watched him identify in things, things in me and in my life that Really, we didn't need. There was more of a, that I thought was a necessity, but it was really a nicety. And that's not to say, oh, sell it, you know, it's not, look, this is not the, 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 the poor man's gospel. I'm not telling you to go out and sell everything. What I'm telling you to do is trust in God. 
for the things that you won't let him have. Let God work in your life and the ways in the places that, that you don't want him to. If you're holding on to control of it, that means you haven't let him have it. It's like giving your wife the clicker. You don't want to do it, but when you do, sometimes she finds a good movie. I could say that because she's not here. The woman at the well took a chance. She took a chance just like the disciples did. She entered into an encounter she shouldn't have. She trusted a man she never met, and she forgot about her physical needs because she believed. Verse 28, verse 28 says, she left her water pot. The whole point of her going up there was to get water for whatever the reason was. She left it, and she went back to the town, and she talked about this encounter. She was unashamed about her past. Look, if you read it, and Mary B. pointed this out to me in, in the first service, after the first service, if you read it, she went back and she told everybody, man and woman. Remember, if this, if this woman was ostracized, if for whatever reason, because maybe she was divorced five times, whatever the reason was, she had no interaction when she came to the well. But when she went back, she went back unashamed about her past and excited about her future. And she talked and the people saw the difference in her. And that's the sign of a true encounter. Because when you have an encounter with Christ, you will never be the same, ever, ever. People will see the change in you. People, start, people you'll walk into work and they'll be like, there's something different about that person. What happened? This woman was so changed by her true encounter with Jesus that in verse 39, it says, when she told everybody, it says that, that many believed because of her testimony and they asked Jesus to hang out for a couple of days. And so he did. So his two and a half day journey really turned into four and a half day. I mean, he was gone a week. But look what it says. It says this. The people told the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves and we know that indeed this is the savior of the world. All she did was go back and talk about her encounter. She didn't try to save somebody. She didn't read a sinner's prayer. She wasn't condemning. She wasn't coming down on him. All she did was say, this man told me everything that I did. He offered living water to me and I drank it. Come and taste. She let Jesus do the work. She was filled with the living water that Christ offered her. It seeped into every part of her life every hidden crack that she had, every foundational crack, every, everything that, that would shake her, every area sealed off from hurt and pain. The woman's been divorced five times, currently living in sin. You can't tell me that she didn't have hurt and pain from all five of those divorces. She didn't have hurt and pain from, being, from, from not having a group of women to go get water with in the morning. Or even somebody to go get, if, it was, if she just didn't get enough, even somebody to go with her up to the well to get some. You can't tell me she didn't have hurt and pain. But the living water that Jesus offered her seeped into every spot and it washed it clean and it healed her and it made her new and it changed her so that others may see the change. That's what it's about. That's what it's about. When you think about water, physical water, the whole reason that she went up to the well 
It's one of the most powerful forces on earth. It brings life, and it takes life. It forms valleys, and it shapes the landscape. It grows, and it shrinks. It's beautiful, and it's devastating at the same time. Physical water. 2019, I got a couple of pictures. 2019, Heavy rain hit Savannah, Tennessee. Some of you may remember this. I actually took these pictures right in downtown Savannah. It's the same house, one week apart. The difference, about, the picture on the left on February 21st, that's already water over flood stage. The picture on the right is about 15 more feet of water. And that was across the valley. At one point, at Pickwick Dam, Tennessee Valley Authority was releasing more than 1.8 million gallons per second through the dam. Because if they didn't, the water would have come over the top of the dam. They just have to open the gates and let it run. Homes were destroyed in this flood. Lives were changed in this flood. Nothing was the same after this. Why do I bring this up? Because that's physical water. That's what physical water can do. That's the stuff that God cleansed the earth with in the beginning. If physical water can be that changing, imagine what spiritual water can do. Imagine what it can do to your life. Imagine what it can do to each of our lives. Those past struggles that we're holding on to, washed away. Those bad relationships that do nothing but torment and torture us and put us through hell that our flesh is trying to hold on to, now gone because we don't have to worry about it. The addictions that had their hooks so deep in us that we couldn't pull them out ourselves now, dissolved, gone away. The impurities we wo- we've, we've taken the opportunity to weave into our DNA, all the things that we've done that old being that we created, 49 years of junk that I've put this body through, gone because of the healing, loving, flooding, living water of Jesus. When we are filled with living water, Jesus says this, the water I will give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You have to understand the water that Jesus gives can't live in a broken vessel. Well, Pastor Josh, then why would we want to do that? Because its very nature is to heal and to purify. If you put it in a broken vessel, it will fix it. Plain and simple. It will change it. It will never be the same. Doesn't matter how much I've broken this body, how much damage I've done to this body. Doesn't matter all the things that I've done when that flowing, loving, living water fills me. I'm no longer the same. I'm no longer the same. Jesus says, we'll never thirst again, but yet I title this message, Stay Thirsty. Seems like they kind of go against each other. Here's what I mean. We need to stay thirsty for his newness. We need to keep our well clean. We need to keep it dug out. We need to make sure that it's bubbling up, that it's living in us. This woman was looking for, for a fresh spring. She thought, it was, she thought it was physical water, but Jesus was talking to her about, her about her soul, about what is inside of her. We need to, to constantly thirst for his newness. Let me tell you this. You cannot ever 
When Jesus gets a hold of you and that living water comes up in you, you can never be thirsty again. It doesn't matter how much you try and thirst. It's like trying to outgive God. You can't do it. You can't be more thirsty than God can quench your thirst. So if we're constantly looking and constantly trying to, 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 to be thirsty and trying to see God and trying to feel him and trying to keep our well clean so that it can come up, you can never be thirsty, ever. That's why we ask God, fill us up so that we can pour out because it fills up again. The problem is, is when you cap your well. The problem is when you cap your cup, you can't flow out of it. Things stagnate. Things stagnate, things get nasty. Like a pond, it just starts to get gross. Eventually it fills in, and then you start to wonder, well, why isn't God hearing me? Let your well run dry, you capped it. We have to allow him to flow through. As Pastor Mark mentioned, John 3.30, it says, he must increase and I must decrease. We have to get to the point where there's no longer any of our water and it's only his. That's the goal. Our water must be replaced by his. That's it. It's that simple. Or is it? Because sometimes we overcomplicate things in a lot of different ways. There's a couple, of, couple that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about. You know, one way that we overcomplicate is because some of us never really tasted the water that Jesus has for us. Some of us haven't. We think we have, but we've never been truly changed. We've never been truly changed. A couple years ago, I just looked at you, Papa Chuck, and I just remembered. This man right here could tell you the man that I was about 10 years ago. Because Papa Chuck used to go to our old church, and he saw and has seen a transformation in me. Haven't you guys? It's different. When you taste and you see, you can't change. You can't, you can't help but be changed. But if you haven't truly tasted and you haven't truly seen, you can't really talk about it. Some of us are waiting for the right time. Some of us are waiting for the right time. When I'm no longer addicted, I'll be ready. When I'm better off financially, I'll be ready. When I work out all the issues with my spouse, then, then God, I'll be ready. When I insert your justification or your excuse here, whatever it is, when I am, then I'll be ready. Let me tell you, as somebody who's been there, if you're holding on to that, you will regret not doing it sooner. I'm not saying jump God's timeline, but when you look back, when I look back, I think, man, I could have done it sooner. I could have changed some things. God said, you weren't ready then. You're ready now, and I can work with now. But don't hold on to it. Pray about it. See what he has for you. There's a big one that a lot of people don't want to talk about. Some of us are holding out because what if there's something better? 
Ooh, that's a soul searcher right there. What if there's something more? What if I'm wrong? What if I devote my whole life to this man and I'm wrong? Pastor Mark said dead people don't care. Doesn't matter. What if you're right? Put that out there. Some of us are thinking, well, what if there is something better? What if I can get a better deal than Jesus? I'll tell you right now, and I'm being serious. I'm being serious. Because the, I, I truly feel in my spirit that there are people in this room that have that question, that have been tumbling around in their heart, been tumbling around in their mind. What if I'm wrong? What if there's something better? Ladies and gentlemen, I'm gonna tell you right now, you will never get a better deal than Jesus Christ. You will never find anything better. You will never, I don't care how skilled of a negotiator or litigator or how charming you are, you will never be able to litigate, negotiate, or charm your way into something better. What Jesus has for you is the best deal on the table. It's the only deal on the table. He's a, as good as it will ever get. Well, Pastor Joshua, none of those things hit me. Maybe it's not complicated. Maybe you're just the woman at the well today. Every day, going about your tasks, steadfast, doing what you're supposed to do, waiting for your Savior to show up, waiting for him to reveal himself to you, to say, I who you speak of am he. Maybe that's you today. Guess what? He's at the well today. He's waiting. And he wants to reveal himself to you. I said it before and I'll say it again. Never get a better deal than him. Thank you so much for listening to this message. Southview Church is a non-denominational, multi-generational, multicultural community of believers passionately pursuing Jesus, family, freedom, and unity in the body of Christ. If you would like to connect with us, visit us at southview.cc and follow us on Facebook and Instagram.